0: Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up to date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. Well, good morning. Great to see you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, if you would, turn to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, it is a um, kind of a hidden gem in the Old Testament. It is toward the back, if you will. um, uh, I'm going to give you a minute to find that one. (laughs) Obadiah. It's the actually it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's 21 verses long, and but it's a really really cool book. Obadiah. We've been doing a series for those of you that are that are uh, new or here for the first time, or you just you're back from the summer if you're a student. And we're doing it over the minor prophets. There's 12 of them. They're found uh, at the very end of the Old Testament. And these minor prophets cover, they're they're really cool. They, They cover a historical period that began from in 1050 with the beginning of Israel's monarchy under King Saul and then King David, then King Solomon. In 930, the kingdom of Israel split after Solomon's reign was over. And 10 of the tribes of Israel, 10 of the states, if you will, the way we might think of it, went and were part of the north, and they uh, consolidated around the name Israel. And then two of the tribes, two of the states, stayed in the south, and they consolidated around the name Judah. And the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, where the temple was built in, in, in all the center of, of, the, of the nation, was in Judah, and Jerusalem was located there. And so that's what happened in 930. And then about a couple hundred years later in 722, the northern kingdom was conquered by an invader called Assyria. Came in, it ransacked them, invaded them, destroyed them. And as Assyria tried to come into Judah, they were actually stopped by a miraculous intervention of God. You can read about that in Isaiah 39. And so Judah continued for a while longer. But then in, in 586, Judah was completely conquered and devastated ...by an invasion from Babylon. And actually, as we'll find out in this message, it came in three different phases. And then they were in exile until uh, 538. And a Persian king, media Persian king named Cyrus... ...released the Jews to be able to go back to their land and rebuild their land. And so the prophets continued to speak to Israel and encourage Israel during this period of time, and that period of time is from 538 to 444. So you have about a 600-year window of messages from God to the Jewish people. And what's really cool about these books is it covers a wide range of experiences that a nation may have. Our nation has been around, we could say, uh Depending on how you count, from 250 years, of course, the pilgrims came over in you know, the 1600s. But our nation is not that old. And we go through, just as a nation goes through different phases, individuals go through different phases. You have times of prosperity. You have times of renewal spiritually. You have times of decline. You have times when you're winning. You have times when you're losing. What's really cool about these prophets is they speak to different time periods and different epochs, So we can kind of find ourselves a little better in some of these messages and some of these these, uh, uh, books that we're, we're looking at. So as we get into the book of Obadiah, I want to just kind of reiterate what we said last week. Anytime you're reading a book in the Bible, for you and I to understand what it means to us, we first have to understand what it meant to its original audience. Now the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And so let's kind of think a little bit about what was going on in the world of the people that this was written to. Now, there are, this was written in the year, sometime between the year 586, after Israel was conquered, and the mid 550s, before a guy named Habinidas went and conquered a, a nation called Edom. So we know this is written in about a 30 year window. And there's a couple of things that are going on there. First thing, it's really, you know, Judah's been conquered, and so Obadiah is talking about those dynamics. And it's kind of important to understand sort of the geography and the political context Israel found itself in. And, you know, Israel was here in a land, and it was surrounded and touched by nine kind of smaller uh, nations, or similar size, kind of comparable nations, maybe not quite as dynamic and strong, but they were pretty Similar nations. And then there in the region were three powerful empires. Egypt, Babylon, and then one that was rising called Media Persia. And kind of a way to understand Israel, and and I hope this is not too uh, awful an analogy, but just kind of think about the SEC in football. And I'm probably going to offend some people here today that went to whatever school you went to. But, think of this. Okay, there are three powerhouses in the SEC. LSU, Alabama, and Georgia. And LSU is kind of like Egypt. They've been around a long time. They're really loaded, but you kind of wonder why they don't do a little bit better. They're kind of an underachieving, but they're still a power. You don't want to mess with them. So you've got LSU. And then you've got Babylon, which is like Alabama. <laughs> you know, they're just the evil. <laughs> they're just kind of running the show. But read your history. Babylon was conquered by Media Persia, the riser. And I think that we would all agree. The University of Georgia. Yes, we are, we are. And so you kind of see that. And then you have in the SEC, you have all these sort of, you know, forgive me, I know somebody went to this school. But you know, there's South Carolina, and there's Vanderbilt, and there's Kentucky, and there's You know, Arkansas, one of my good friends is an Arkansas fan, and, you know, come on. I mean, you know, they're just sort of there. (laughs) They're not a power, they're not a force, they're just there. And then there was Israel. And Israel back in that time was stronger than these peripheral nations, but they weren't an empire. They were kind of like, and again, my wife kind of was asking me about this, but they're kind of like Auburn is. It's kind of like, you know, it's Auburn. Auburn sometimes thinks it can play with the big boys, but let's face it, no one sweats them anymore, right? They're just, they're just gone in, it, in those kind of games. And so that's kind of what Israel was at. Israel was kind of like in this kind of no man's land, a feeling like, you know, we're kind of, they could see themselves in these empires, and once they were, but now they're a little bit more like these lesser nations that they really can't compete with. And so Israel is kind of in that spot and in that that thing. And so what happened in Israel, they had a really great king named Josiah. And he really cleaned up the nation. He straightened it up. He did a lot of great reforms. And things were really coming together in Israel. But he decided to go to war with Egypt. And in that war, he got killed by the Egyptian emperor named Necho, Necho II, he was killed in battle. And from then on, it it collapsed. Egypt came in and sort of took over. They took Josiah's son and removed him from being the king, and they put another one of his sons in there as king. They changed the name of his son, which is something they would do to sort of kind of assert their dominance. When they're the ones naming the king, they would assert their dominance over that king and that empire. And then later on, what would happen is Babylon would get in a battle and kind of destroyed and kind of hurt Egypt, really hampered him. And so Babylon kind of took over that role of being uh, the, the overlord over, the, over Israel. And Israel's new king didn't like it, so he fought against them. And they killed him, they executed him, they came in, they conquered. And they exiled people. They took people uh, away back to Babylon, all the leaders. They took all the nice artifacts that were in the temple, all the treasures, all the wealth that was in Israel's temple and in their castle, they took away. And then 11 years later, another Judean king decided to fight against Babylon. And this time, Babylon came in for, for good. They came in. They burned the temple down. They just, they they raised the walls. They destroyed everything about it. They, they, the palace, all of their governmental buildings, they just completely put to rubble. They destroyed the place. They ransacked it. Now, here's something else that's really interesting that'll help you, though, Obadiah. There was one of these side nations, was called Edom. And Edom had a relationship with Israel. See, Israel developed from a guy named Jacob way back when, and Jacob had a brother named Esau, and the nation of Edom developed from Jacob's brother Esau, and so there was this kind of sibling rivalry, they kind of got along but didn't get along all the time, and so when Babylon had come in and was destroying the place, and they were you know, doing all this, the Judeans that flee fled toward the woods and toward the forests that were by Edom, and the Edomites went out and captured them. And confiscated them and sold them into slavery. And then, when Babylon left and all this rubble, the Edomites literally went to the mountain, to the place where Israel's temple was, and they threw a drunken party. They, you know, banged on the drums, they danced, they they drank wine and they got completely drunk. They just had a party. They literally danced on their grave. And so it is into this sort of a context that Obadiah writes. And so I want to start here. And if you read the, the first 14 verses, and you could do that some other time on, on your own, but Obadiah just describes what Edom had did, how they were you know, just you know, scumbags, you know, they, 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 they sold them into slavery, how they betrayed their brothers, how they did this evil and this horrifying thing and how they celebrated their demise. And he, he, he's talking about that. And then he gets into verse 15 and here's what Obadiah says. He says in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near to all nations. Now that, that phrase, the day of the Lord is a big deal to Israel. It's a big deal of the Old Testament. And what it, it originated from was when the exodus happened. If you remember, the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, and God showed up and did plagues after plagues. And then he you know, brought them out after the Passover. And then when they were crossing the Red Sea, the Egyptian army was coming after them, and God, the, the, the sea closed in on them and destroyed them. And they called that whole event of God coming to rescue his people and God judging their oppressors, the Jewish people called that the day, the day. And they remembered it. Every year they, they, uh, they had their big, they did the Passover uh, celebration and feast to remember the day, remember the day. And they always understood that and they believed their God would show up like that in their future when they were oppressed, when things were going wrong, they believed their God would show up in the same way with this incredible demonstration of power. And there's a lot of references to the day when you read in the Old Testament. One of A powerful one is found in Isaiah 64. And the prophet Isaiah is praying, and he says, O oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake at your presence. Could you imagine something like that happening? Could you imagine one day you're looking up into the blue sky and you see these hands and they just roll back the sky and you just see this vast, incredible being coming down and mountains are literally trembling and shaking. This is kind of what they were were understanding, this powerful demonstration of God, this awesome ascension of God into their world and so he talks about the day of the lord then he goes on and he describes how they want to see the day of the the lord unfold in their time as for you what you have done it will be done to you this is speaking to um edom your deeds will return upon your own head just as you drank on my holy hill so all the nations will drink continually they will drink and drink as if it had never been but on mount zion that's referring to israel there will be deliverance it will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. That literally means they will have their land back. They will re- re- receive it back. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame, and Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. Verse 19 People from Negev get, will occupy the mountains of Esau, the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephah. And the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shephard will possess the towns of the Negev. Verse twenty-one: deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So, what Obadiah does here is it begins to speak about something that is coming in the near future, a time when Edom, this land that had sort of betrayed their brother, is going to be judged. and That happened in the year 553. Again, uh, Habanonos, the king of, uh, of Babylon at the time, came in and invaded Edom and destroyed it, and Edom was raised forever gone forever and then a few years from that about 20 years from that the media persian empire is going to come and they're going to overthrow babylon and the media persian king named cyrus is going to declare an edict and he's going to allow all the jews to go back to their land and they're going to be able to rebuild their land and repossess it and so what we see is this prophecy coming true God is doing exactly what he said. He is destroying his enemies, their enemies, avenging that. And then he is restoring their land to them, their inheritance to them, and and so they can thrive and be his people again. Now as we read Obadiah and we go through it, I think there's three takeaways that are very powerful for you and, and me and for our life. There's three of them. And one of them, Uh, as we get into it and talk about it, is the faithfulness of God. When we read Obadiah, we see the faithfulness of God. You see, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham thousands of years before this happened. And he promised him, out of his union with Sarah, they would bring forth a great nation on the face of the earth that would bless all the other nations. And even though this nation rebelled against him, even though this nation disregarded him, even though they they had contempt for God at times, and they went through judgment, and they went through a correction here, God remained faithful to them. Their land was restored to them. It came back exactly as God said it was. They had their land back. That never happens. Conquerors don't conquer a land and then give it back to the people they conquered. That happened. And they saw the faithfulness of God. And as we continue with Israel's history, we see they occupied that land for a long period of time. And then in, in 30 A.D., Christ came and ministered. And, of course, we know what happened. He was rejected by his people. And he was crucified. And in 70 A.D., the Romans came in once again. And they ransacked Jerusalem and they destroyed it. They tore it down. And for thousands of years, the Jewish people were dispersed, particularly in Europe, but really all over the world, in Argentina, in South America, they were dispersed everywhere. Then in the 1900s, a demonic madman arose in Germany with this incredibly sinister idea that what he would do is exterminate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. He would literally do this Holocaust. We know the story, six million people died but he lost that war, and what's really amazing is right after this effort, this evil effort to exterminate the Jewish people, the only lasting—I remember reading a book by John Toland on Hitler, and when he summed it up, he said, "What is the lasting legacy of the Nazi movement, of the German Empire, of the Third Reich?" And he said, "There's only one thing: is it literally led to the establishment of the nation of Israel." This evil, demonic effort to wipe out the Jewish people literally led to them reconvening and refiguring in their home. It's an awesome, awesome thing. And today Israel is becoming a thriving and a a great nation again. Frederick the Great, years ago, was talking to one of his advisors and he said, Give me the most convincing proof there is that there's a God. And his advisor responded with two words. The Jew. The Jew. No people like that have gone through, have not had a land for almost 2,000 years. And they survive. And they're here today as a great thriving nation. It is a sign of the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to a man that lived 40,000 years ago, an agreement he made to him about his descendants. Let me tell you what else God's faithful to. God's faithful to his covenant with his son. And that, son, that, that covenant involves you and I. There's a real powerful verse in Timothy. Paul writes and he says, and he's, he's, he's quoting sort of a, a colloquialism that all the church would say. Together, they talked about how, how and, and in this colloquialism, he says this one thing. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And what Obadiah is and what the, the Bible's is a story, it is a story of the faithfulness of God. A God who, when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, because he will not deny, he will not renounce his own integrity and his own promises. Obadiah is a message about the faithfulness of God to his people. The second thing that, that Obadiah is, is, is it, it's, a, it's a commentary and it's it's something that I think we need to really re embrace as Christians, and it is this it is the sacredness of God's wrath. The sacredness of God's wrath. Now, I understand why we bristle. At hearing the wrath of God, I've seen them. You've seen them too. People with sandwich boards that say, "Repent or go to hell." We've seen the guys on the street corners preaching hell, and and telling people they're you know just condemning. We we we. I get that. I understand why there is an aversion to to this thing. But I think we need to have a real honest. description of our God that fits the Bible and he is a God of wrath I remember one time going to a a Bible study when I was in college and this lady was talking big group of college students and she said this my God would not send anyone to hell isn't that wonderful my God wouldn't send anyone to hell and I thought, not anyone? Like, nobody? Really? He, he wouldn't send anyone to hell? And so here's what happened when we take this God, we take God and make him a dessert. It's full of cream, and he's covered in sugar and dipped in chocolate, and he's got sprinkles. We have a God no one would take seriously. No one would take that seriously. He's the substitute teacher. He just looks the other way. You can get away with what you want. We've created this. And and what I would say to you this, I think think our world is seeing that as an incredibly insufficient version of God. It's not a version they'll believe in. This summer I was um, watching a show and I don't, literally do not watch news shows if you want to fine go at it I just want to avoid it I keep up with things a little bit but there was one interview I just had to see and it was this you know very uh it was was a talk show guy and he he had a guy on his show named Sean Penn you know Sean Penn is the actor some of you know him Sean Penn's an actor, a very famous actor. And um, Sean Penn had been in the Ukraine. And he was filming this vice kind of reality uh, thing on the invasion, on the war. He got to know uh, President Belinsky. He got to know a lot of the leaders. He saw people, you know, the sacrifice. And he saw the, the bloodshed and the horror of what was going on over there. And he's with this guy. And you can see for 20 minutes, he just got back. To America, he is just fuming with what he had been through, and, and, and he was describing it and describing the horror of it. And then the interviewer in the end says, Is there any final thoughts that you want to say? What is your strongest thought, your strongest uh, conclusion about what you saw over there? And Sean Penn said this I don't know if there's a God or not, but if there is, He will rain down vengeance upon all comprehension. And see, we live in a world where terrible things happen. We live in a world of sex traffickers. We live in a world of of, of demonic governments that oppress people and use people and, and destroy people. We live in a world where those with power and wealth exploit terribly those that don't. And we need to know that at the end of the day, there is going to be an authority. There is going to be a being who will look at the oppressor on the side of his victims and say, how could you do this? When you did this to them, you did this to me. And the Bible talks about this day, and it says humanity will cheer, and they will worship that kind of a god. And there is a sacredness to wrath. Our God is not a dessert. He is a consuming fire. And he is an awesome being. And he loves the, the downtrodden. He loves the victim. He cares about what happens. And he will have his day. It's a sacred thing. A sacred thing. And the last thing I want to talk about, and I think this is such a powerful thing and in Obadiah is the nuance on the day of the Lord, the nuance on the day of the Lord, the day when God would rend the heavens and he would come down. And see, here's the nuance. God did rend the heavens and come down, but he literally didn't take his huge hands and rip the sky apart. And show this kind of awesome, overpowering, coercive display of power. No, he came down. And he became a child, an infant. Within a poor teenage girl. Who had just gotten married, or was about to be married to a poor carpenter. And he came into this earth in a barn. And he came to this earth and he lived in a... In in a countryside, a very ignoble, very uh, just remote part of the Roman Empire. And he was taught a few things, taught lessons, taught Bible stories. When he was 30 years old, he was crucified on a cross. He was done. Today, remarkably, he's not just remembered. He is literally the single most significant figure in human history. In two thousand thirteen, there was two researchers, both were college professors. One had gotten his PhD at Stanford. One at MIT, and they they came together and they wanted to do this research on who and they call the book "Who's the Biggest" or "Who's Bigger," "Who's Bigger," and they wanted to say who is the single, who are the most significant figures in all human history. And they came up with a list, and number one was Jesus, and number two was Napoleon, and number three was Shakespeare, and number four was Muhammad. But what they said is the gap between number one and number two was extraordinary. How does that happen? How does a 30-year-old who was killed when he was 33 who spent some time in remote parts of a of a of a Roman empire and is crucified how does he become the single most significant figure in all of human history and it's not debatable how does it happen it is only god could do that only god could do that you know i'm a i'm a basketball fan Played basketball in high school. because my high school buddies are here today. One of my old teammates used to carry him back in the day. <laughs> back in the day. But we, we, you know, I love basketball, and I've always particularly liked watching the NBA playoffs. And uh, I remember with my friend, friend Tim Carter, we watched the most incredible performance by Michael Jordan ever. And it was in uh, 1997. It was game five of this series with the, with the Utah Jazz. It was in Utah. And the Bulls won that game, a real close game, 90 to 88. And Michael Jordan scored 38 points in that game. And he made a game-winning shot with about 10 seconds left, about thir- I think 13 seconds left, real late in the game. Made a game-winning shot. Now. You say, why is that the greatest game Michael Jordan ever played? I mean, 38 points, team got 90. That's a lot of points to score, and hitting a game-winning shot is great, but he's scored more points in games, and he's won. He's hit more dramatic game-winning shots than that one. Why was that game so great? And really, why that was Michael Jordan's greatest game is because of what happened the night before. So the night before, Michael was in a, a Salt Lake City hotel and he he was starving and so he ordered a pizza the only place he could open late at night was a pizza he got a late night pizza they brought it to him he ate the pizza and something was wrong with the pizza he tried to go to sleep his stomach started going he got Montezuma's revenge if you've ever had it it's not good for your sleep he got a fever of 102, 103 all night long he didn't sleep at all the next day, he was still feverish. He was shed shivers. He had flu. He had this incredible reaction to this pizza. And they were catting him on IVs. They were doing all this stuff. And when game time came around, he just, he looked limp. He just said, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Michael Jordan playing a great game when he's healthy is something. But Michael Jordan scoring 38 points and hitting a game-winning shot with a 102-degree temperature is extraordinary. There's nothing like it. Listen, if God had just ripped open the heavens and said, here I am, that'd be something else. But for God to come, become human, become small, be a servant, be in remote places, be crucified, hang helpless and possessionless on a cross. That is awesome. It is extraordinary. It is is something only a God could do. Only God could do that. This powerful nuance to who Jesus is. It's incredible. Napoleon Bernabar once said of Jesus, he said, I know men And I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. The gap between him and all who have existed is an infinity. He said, myself and Charlemagne and Caesar, we build empires. But what do we build them on? We build them on force. Jesus Christ built a kingdom on love. And today, millions still March in his name. History knows no conqueror like Christ. And this is the powerful force and the thrust of of Obadiah's message. Listen, God is faithful. God is faithful. These guys were in the most devastating place in their life. Their northern empire had been destroyed. Their empire had been destroyed. Their king's name was changed. People were dancing and partying on their their graves. They had mourned their own mistakes and their own contribution to it. And God spoke to them and he said, I'm going to restore everything back. I promised I would, I'm going to do it. God is faithful. Listen, wrath is sacred. Wrath is sacred and we don't need to be using it in a vindictive way to win arguments and we don't need to do some of the ways it's, but it is a sacred thing of God and it's something we, that is really awesome and holy and something we appreciate. Then the, the last thing here is that we understand the nuance of the day of the Lord. Man, God did come. He did rend the heavens and come down and the mountains have quaked and the nations have believed. Let's let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this powerful brief book. It was written that illustrates your faithfulness. It illustrates your wrath. And it illustrates the kind of God you are in the way you had your day the way that you had the day of the Lord unfold, that you didn't come, again, in a coercive demonstration of power. You came in a persuasive demonstration of weakness. And Jesus, we look at you and we go, wow, what, only a God, only God could conquer the way you have. Only God could have done what you've done. A God in power, which we'll see, will be an incredible thing, but God in weakness is something to behold. We love you. We pray you turn our hearts toward you as we worship you and receive communion this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.